Welcome back to the Radical Reverend Show. It's a delight to be with you, if not in the radio station, certainly at a respectable social distance. And uh, today we're looking at, as we've been looking at the situation for weeks now, um, that we're all living under the pandemic, COVID-19. But in particular today, we're looking at what it is to be in the post-secondary education system with COVID-19. And to do that, uh, we have two wonderful guests. The first is Lena Medaglia, and Lena is a professor at George Brown College. She te teaches liberal arts and sciences, uh, and she's full-time there. So Lena, welcome to the Radical Reverend Show. Thank you, thank you. So let's start off by, by talking about uh, your career in academia. How long have you been at George Brown? When did you start? So I've been at George Brown since 1988. Um, I started uh, for, for a couple of years, I was part-time and then I was lucky enough to be hired. So I've been there for quite a few years now. Yeah. You're getting close to retirement, aren't you? Or I am to close to retirement. I am close to retirement. And uh, um, certainly this is one of the situations that makes you think about how, you know, where you else you could spend your time. Um, I love teaching. As it is, I, I've been an in-class teacher for many, many years as well. But for the past few years, because of uh, my own home situation, I've taught online. So my experience is both as an in-class teacher and as an online teacher. Um, part of the time I was half online and half in the classroom and now I'm online. So I was kind of prepared uh, for this pandemic without knowing that I was prepared for this <laughs> pandemic. So you've had less of a learning curve than a lot of your contemporaries, I'm sure, then. I have, I have, and so, and I did, um, you know, check in with my friends who are teaching either full-time in the classroom or half the time in the classroom to ask what their experience was. And, uh, you know, it, it was sometimes the same and uh, often different than mine, but you're right about the learning curve. It's, it's pretty steep when, when you're kind of thrown in, right? And, yeah. So, so tell me about the courses you teach uh, right off the bat. What, what so, kinds of courses? <laughs> so right now, the, the course that I've been teaching is uh, what's called a multidisciplinary course that students have the option to take along with their program courses, which they have to take. So the course is called Conspiracy Theories from Politics to Paranoia. Wow, what a perfect time to be teaching a course like that. Yes, yes. So you can imagine that towards the end of last term, I received uh, quite a few papers that talked about the conspiracy of, of COVID-19 or the conspiracies connected to COVID-19. Yeah. So tell us some of them. I, I, I'm intrigued and I'm sure my, I, our listeners are as well. What are some of the conspiracy theories that are floating around? Well, you, you've heard them. I mean, I think everybody's heard them. Um, for example, the, the theory that the, that the virus was man-made in a lab and, um, and that uh, for either it escaped by itself by accident or that it was a planned plague, you know, for the world. Um, I had one really great, amazing paper where the student also had a science background and was able to, to really dispel this myth because it's about engaging with a conspiracy theory and taking it apart. Is there so, any truth in this? So how did, how did he, she take that apart? How, how did that work? By, by bringing in science, by, by um, in interviewing or at least researching uh, the words of scientists by uh, being able to 
show people, lay people like me, uh, that is with regards to science, how it could not have been made in a lab and you know purposely thrown out that this is this is just a um an, an evolution of of other things you know it doesn't mean that uh, it's all okay but it's an evolution of other things yeah right now i'm sure some of the conspiracy theories are kind of post the introduction of covid as well um, I, yes. I just kind of throw those out there i mean um, that this is being used. The only one that I've heard that I thought was particularly egregious, but that this is a way of kind of killing off the weak um, by governments in terms of interaction. So, uh, but I want to hear about your students as well. So go on. Yeah. Oh, okay. So, um, yes, definitely that it's a, a depopulation device that uh and that that doesn't even make any sense because everyone is affected and uh and people are dying who might not even have had a, a pre-existing condition or who are not you know old people <laughs> like uh, like me and uh um yeah so that's so that that's it's my job then to to tear that apart and at the same time be compassionate because everyone is afraid my students, uh, you know, there's a sort of a wave of fear that, that, that you could see has happened. So they responding to, the, to this COVID, even though I, I, I would normally say, it's really too soon for us to talk about this. We don't have enough evidence about anything. And about, but um, so the, it's one of the ways in which I had to adjust my own teaching is to, is to really um, work with my students to think about things um, in ways that I didn't have the privilege to do before. So, so we, for example, I took out the last exam because it was no point. What is the point of a multiple choice exam when you're at home and you don't have an opportunity to really uh, look at situations closely? Uh, it's, it, you know, it's about memory versus thoughtful interaction, um, reflection, all of those things. So yeah, so my students got to do some assignments uh, over again because that's what, that's what it's possible to do in this time. Before we leave the conspiracy theory, because I just find that so fascinating, did any of yeah. your students hand in papers where they were kind of amenable to a conspiracy theory or trying to defend one or was it all kind of pointing them out and taking them apart? There were a couple, there were a couple. And again, it's my responsibility because, because then there is a, there are traces also of racism, as you know, that, that come into that. Um, and uh, it's uh, it's sad and ugly when it rears its head. And so again, I think, okay, this is an opportunity. This is a teaching. It doesn't mean that uh, it doesn't mean that that's I'm going to change somebody's mind. But I can say, no, this is not <laughs> this is not it, and this is why. I mean, perhaps if it wasn't when we're you're talking about a teacher and a student who then comes up with because there have been other racist theories that have been put forward which I don't uh, um, allow in my class. But plus, we also have a a very, very clear um, sort of, I, I was going to say, uh, you know, bylaws of the, of the school, um, rules of the school that, that, no, we don't engage with uh, racist theories, racist, homophobic, and uh, so on. It's my responsibility, again, as a teacher, when you have a student who comes up with this to, to not just dismiss it at all, but to engage with it to to try to find the opportunity for learning it's not as easy online because when you're in a classroom face to face you can deal with it you can then continue the discussion with the student you know by yourself but when you're online you've got to do what you can i call students too uh, they don't expect me to phone them but i do <laughs> and uh, and then they're surprised so um, all sorts of theories uh, about COVID, uh, conspiracy theories about the COVID. 
um, some that are not really conspiracy theories, but that are mysteries. There's a difference between one and the other, right? T just to give you an example, um, I get every year conspiracy theories about, conspiracy theories, I'm saying it in quotes, about the Bermuda Triangle or about Bigfoot. Well, you know, unless you can show that there has been, that people have gotten together and plotted uh, around something, it's not a conspiracy. So I have to clarify that then and, and have the student completely rewrite the, the, the report or the paper. Yeah. We, um, we, we live in interesting times and, and you're- We really, really do. Absolutely apropos. By the way, if you're just tuning in, um, you're listening, of course, to The Radical Reverend Show. I am she, Sherry DeNovo, and we are talking today about education uh, with COVID, under COVID, around COVID. And I'm speaking to Alina Medaglia. She's a professor at George Brown College, has been for many, many years. And we're talking about how this has affected uh, her job and education period. So let's talk, first of all, before we get into education generally, let's talk about your students. How are your students weathering this? How are they doing? Well, one of the phenomen, a phenomenon that we've uh, noticed um, as teachers, and it's happened to me and it's happened to my colleagues as well, is that really, you know, students who were doing really, really well, you know, up until March, all of a sudden disappeared completely in spite of our um, overtures, I would say, calling them, trying to get in touch with them, saying, you know, you'll have more time, you can, and, and my students are already online, remember this, uh, but many disappeared, and even when we got in touch with them and they were able to respond, said, just can't do it, I cannot do it. Um, I think that uh, certainly they've been affected, even more than we have. Some students uh, come from, uh, they come from all parts of the world to, to come to Toronto to school and they had to leave to go back home or they're confined uh, to maybe a small apartment that they're sharing with other students and they, they're now dependent on what? To feed them to, to you know, for their basic necessities. So, so that's, that's been quite hard, um, although there have been online communities that are connected to school that have been very encouraging. It's a, it's a kind of, we're all in the same boat and we're all in it together. So one of my colleagues who, who is also an online teacher and who's uh, um, a, you know, very expert at her subjects has talked about the same thing about about the sort of the coming together feeling like you have uh, a, a community of people especially for people who didn't have other communities um, so that's so that's worked either way you know kind of extreme reactions in one way or another um, a lot of the others we've noticed have wanted to talk about the situation a lot more you know that and and need need to kind of express that even in the assignments that they do and i think we have to uh, be open to that keep a keep an opening to to students who need to talk i would say that uh, yes there are others then who now are working more than they usually do especially those in the in the field or, you know in the food industry caregivers and so on some have lost their job completely, and then some are working longer hours, which means then that uh, their, their schooling, you know, would be suffering. We try to make accommodations for that as well, especially when you're talking about a student who's now supporting um, herself, maybe a couple of other people that she's living with at the time, and maybe sending money back home to relatives so so there's a lot on on her shoulders and and that's one of the reasons why we may have seen some that have just disappeared right yeah um, uh, speaking about education of course here on the radical reverend show and uh, it strikes me that when we think students or in the general public who aren't in in the post-secondary education field might think someone young um 
you know, uh, supported in part by their family, uh, or at least with the option of going home during a crisis like this, which isn't really the picture of what students are looking like these days, right? It's absolutely not. Although I can say that most of my students are between the ages of 18 and 24, there's a, a huge population of adults, older adults, older than 25, and all the way up to you know retirement age, what should be retirement age, who are uh, either coming back to school because they lost their job and they need to retrain, uh, or they have uh, you know moved here either you know out of their own free will. That's the best scenario, right? When somebody immigrates and they. They've wanted to and they're okay where they are, but they're just feeling like they need to. But that's not our students. Our students are there so that they can um, get jobs as fast as possible so that they can support families that are here. Very often, they are back in college to do a whole bunch of things to, to support their families and to try to make a life in Toronto and, um, and also to... Uh, get enough money so that they can go part-time to school, maybe to another college program or another university program, so that they can then uh, go back to the first uh, job that they had, you know, and that's, you know, whether they were doctors or, or um, social workers or, you know, ed or, you know, skilled mechanics. They want to be able to contribute and to be independent and that's what they do so they work very hard very often uh, without having uh, the opportunity to to even see their families I mean if, you, if you've ever taken an uber and I have occasionally when my children have sent me home after I I uh, looked after my grandchildren for the night then and you and you have conversations you can see that, that there is a there are two and three jobs in addition to school that are happening. So. Speaking here on the Radical Reverend show about education and COVID. So um, let's talk about, the, just before we get off the, that side of things, the federal government has announced a, a number of programs, you know, from CERB to direct grants to students. Uh, are these working? Are they helping? What is your experience of that, you know? I think I, I think I need to look at this um, a little bit more because um, again we're we're kind of isolated in our in our house. I I um, as a, I asked some colleagues about you know what what is their sense around what's happening with the, with these programs. They said that they feel that that perhaps they're coming down the line. Certainly, we hear from our unions from our union um, a great deal uh, that there's still a lot of a lot a lot of kinks that need to be worked out they're hoping that they are going to reach the people who are, are most in need of these programs but I think we are um, I think that the people who are, who are working frontline are doing the best they can to deliver this work uh, but we're still it's still in the making. So we hope that any student out there who, who thinks that they might be eligible is going to get in touch with it. Yeah. Talk, yell, do whatever it is that you have to do to get in there. And remember that if nobody's going to come looking for you, you still have to advocate for yourself and for your, uh, you know, for other students. Come in and, uh, you know, don't, don't give up. Don't give up. Um. Yeah, I hear you. <laughs> I'm speaking to, to uh, uh, Lena Medaglia, professor at George Brown College uh, about uh, education and the post-secondary sphere under COVID. Um, so in terms of marking now, I know that many people that I've spoken to, they're kind of simplifying it all and many are going to kind of a pass-fail system on some courses, um, even Bizarrely enough, you know, people are considering it in things like law school. So what, what's been your experience of, you know, how has COVID changed the marking and, the, and that whole system? Well, from my, from my own perspective, 
the way that it's changed my marking is, um, as I was saying before, that I'm, I'm allowing students to redo their work much more than I would um, have ever had before, because I think it's, a, it's maybe an opportunity to learn. I don't want to, I've resisted against lowering, you know, standards of work, but because I think it doesn't do anyone any favors at the end. However, um, I have, you know, allowed students to, to redo once or twice, occasionally more, because then it's, then it becomes a process to learning rather than a sort of giving up on what it is that, because this course is really about uh, reasoning, argumentation, it's, uh, it's about philosophy, it's about popular culture, it's about many, many things. And those are skills that you take with you wherever you go. It's, it's not just, uh, that's, what a, that's what a liberal arts course is supposed to do. Any course is uh, kind of preparing you for having discussions and dialogues with, with people. Yeah, so, teaching you that's how to process and how to think. Absolutely. Yes. Um, how to think, yes. So, so now you, you've been teaching and you've been in the education sphere since 88. You've seen a whole lot of changes, I'm sure, yes. in terms of everything, and in, including your teaching online now, um, which is relatively new in the great sphere of education. Um, how do you think COVID is, and this experience of the pandemic is going to shift things once we get back to more normal? How, how's it going to change the whole post-secondary education scene, do you think? Well, in my best hope, the way that it's going to change the educational system is that there will be a lot more um, insight and sensitivity into what it constitutes to be human and to be connected and to be, um, to be in community that that we'll be able to see a shift in how community works and that it is possible to have a virtual community and have uh, uh, and, and, and be in touch with people no matter where you are. So, the, so the, that's in, the, in, our, in our best hope. That's what we're hoping that we're going to do. Uh, we hope that this doesn't mean that the people are going to, feel further apart from one another. I mean, when I, when I, this is what they lament is, oh God, you know, at least in the classroom, there was, you could see people physically, you could see if they were not doing all right. I think that we are gonna learn to communicate in more ways, again, in my best hope. What is really, really important? I have a particular bias about what is important, and that is uh, humans together, working together to make a better place in this world. I mean, that's why I was a social worker in my other life, and, and then I became a teacher in this life. And even when I started teaching, uh, and I was working in, uh, in the field of violence against women, and um, that is preventing violence against women, working with violence against women. When I started at George Brown, that was my, my best hope as well, is that we all come together and deal with, uh, with issues that are plaguing our world because violence uh, to one another, violence to the earth are all connected, are all interconnected. And um, so I guess towards peace and love, is what I'm hoping for. That's a beautiful it hope. It sounds uh, very hippie. <laughs> no, it is. For a teacher. And, <laughs> I mean, I could talk about pedagogy. I remember speaking to a teacher, a good friend, who said that when I said, so when you, you have a new class and they all come in, what is the first thing you think, you know, when you're beginning of the year kind of scenario? And, and she said, uh, I look at them all and I try to figure out how I'm going to 
love them all, <laughs> which I thought was a kind of lovely <laughs> way of looking at teaching, period. Uh, we're speaking to Lena yeah. Medagli, her professor at George Brown. We're talking about post-secondary education and, of course, COVID. We're all talking about nothing much but COVID these days in media. Uh, and, uh, of course, we'd love to hear from you out there in listener land, too, and hear your feedback. So Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, email, any way you want to get in touch with me, I will certainly respond, and I love your ideas for shows. Keep them coming. Uh, Lena, just one last question, and we just have about a minute left. Um, I just sure. wanted to ask you, I, I mean, obviously there's an economic cost to this, and you know, we're, we're looking at governments that are probably going to be talking austerity once this is all over in some way, shape, or form. We already know that the college system and the university system are, you know, having difficulty balancing their budgets even before COVID hit. Um, you know, are we going to survive this? Like, what do you, what do you see uh, in the broader picture? Um, you know, what, what is the message to governments coming out of this? If you want to leave it with one, one sentence or, or more, one sentence if you can, um, what do you want governments to hear coming out of this in terms of support for post-secondary education? I think that, uh, that governments have to take heed of what is really important to students and fund students through, get them through, get them, get them the support that they need. Why should a student take on two or three jobs, not have that they need, and uh, stop asking them for more money? because they don't have it. Um, and uh, it would be fantastic if we could have a, a free, you know, post-secondary education in this country. That's a dream. Absolutely. Thank you, Lena. And you are listening to The Radical Reverend Show. Stay tuned. So we're back here on the Radical Reverend Show, and today's topic is, as you know, uh, post-secondary education and COVID. We've been dealing, of course, with all things COVID for the last several weeks. Uh, this is no different, but I wanted to look at uh, what's going on in our colleges and universities. You heard in the first half of the show from Lena, uh, who teaches at a college, and what her concerns, what's happening with students, etc. there. Uh, now we're going to go to York. My I'm an alum from York as well, to Professor Francois Tanguay Renault. Uh, he is a director, uh, co director of Jack and May Nathanson Center on Transnational Human Rights, Crime, and Security. He's done that since uh, 2012. He shares that title with uh, Heidi Matthews. Also, uh, just an illustrious academic background as a professor, lawyer, and Rhodes Scholar. So, Francois, welcome to the Radical Reverend Show. Pleasure being here, Sherry. So, so tell me, first of all, the center. Tell us about that. What, what kind of work do you do? So the center was initially created as a more focused institution that sought to study um, sort of organized crime uh, in the 1990s. Now, in the mid-2000s, uh, Craig Scott, a colleague of mine, uh, took the reins of the center and sought to expand its mandate to cover the issues that are included in its title, right? This, uh, the transnational human rights, crime and security, and focus mostly on where uh, these issues um, intersect. Um, uh, so Craig uh, hired me as a graduate student at the time, so I was really involved with uh, designing uh, the mandate of the, the Renewed Center. And since about 2006, uh, these are the issues that we've been focusing on. And as you can imagine, the, the remit of, of, of what uh, members, associates are interested in is, is very broad uh, because obviously human rights, crime and security in their own rights are um, colossal topics to tackle. Um, but really, we felt that uh, their intersections were, were understudied, right? And so, for example, on an issue in a context like uh, the one in which we're living now, right, that of a, of a pandemic, um, well, concerns for security, right, personal safety, collective safety obviously are at the fore, but then you also have a number of people who are trumpeting civil liberties in the face of that, right? Um, and, um, Perhaps you know the use of, of means of surveillance that uh, 
would otherwise or, or could perhaps be available to law enforcement in the criminal context, right? So, so that gives us a bit of a, a vista into into these issues. So the center really uh, is there to support the work of 30 or so research associates who are mostly professor at York, although there are some external associates. Uh, we have a set of graduate fellows every year for whom we host a seminar and who uh, take part in our activities. Uh, we have uh, visiting professors and a series of, of, of seminars, um, workshops, and conferences that we hold every year uh, leading to publications of various sorts. Uh, so I don't want to dwell on this because our topic really is post-secondary, but I, I can't help but dip a toe in here. Um, so, uh, you know, one of the, when we're looking at the way COVID's been dealt with by different nation states, um, we're seeing a variety of responses in terms of tracking individuals, for example, keeping people at home, either forcefully or not. Um, it certainly has put the issue of civil liberties and the way that that's enforced up for grabs. I want to deal with our own context here. I mean, here we have situation uh, in Toronto, we're looking at police going out, ticketing people who are not keeping social distance, for example, which I guess is fine, but uh, I'm particularly interested there where you're dealing with people who have no option but to live on the streets, who are out, who are living in tents, who are living in unsafe conditions almost, you know, by definition, uh, and can't pay tickets, can't pay the tickets anyway, they're getting ticketed too. Where is the, have you looked at that? Right, so a situation like COVID being the kind of crisis or, or, or emergency situation that it is brings to the fore a number of important values and rights, right? That um, sometimes um, sort of go in the same direction, but sometimes, conflict, right? So, 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 and rights and interests, I should say. So obviously public health, public, uh, the interest of the, uh, in the, of the population in staying healthy uh, and not ending up in a hospital where there's no ventilator, right? Um, he has been trumpeted as very, very, very important. And uh, to be sure it is, right? Uh, and um, measures that have been deployed to address the situations are, are aimed to be justified, right? But there are always limits on what uh, governments can do and shouldn't do in a given situation, right? And as you point out, right, so, so, so the, the health of the population has to be balanced at some point with other interests. Right? So the liberty of people, um, the security of um, people who live in Canada, right? And that, that, you know, jives with the number of issues that you pointed out, right? So if you're going to ask people to self-isolate and don't have a house, or the context in which they have to self-isolate is one in which there is domestic abuse, um, well, then you end up with a situation where public health has to be balanced with, with those issues. And there have to be potential exceptions, right, that are made to requirements that are made, uh, that, are, that, are, that are, to what's demanded of people, such as so, so as to allow that they're not the, the problem is not compounded in unexpected ways, right? So um, the Canadian governments and the premiers uh, released, I think, on April 28th, um, a, a document, right, a set of guidelines for seeking to lift, right, the restrictive measures that have been uh, put in place uh, to manage uh, the COVID-19 health crisis, and these guidelines, right, require. A bunch of things that the infection be controlled uh, and notably that we have the capacity to test trace and isolate all cases right and here while well, the devil is in the details because again there are going to be a bunch of situations that we're going to require uh, different approaches to tackle different kinds of situations right so what we hear in the media are really uh, often the, the, the I want to say the sexy aspect of this right so could apps could technology be used to, um, to, 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 to carry out this task of, of, of tracing and isolating all cases, right? Could, uh, or should we, like, so should, and, and should these apps be, um, so, so what should be the structure of these apps, right? Should these apps be uh, decentralized, be just dealing with the information that's on people's phone, or should the information be centralized, um, et cetera? But once we know who has, um, who has the virus, right? Who has COVID-19 and who has come into contact with uh, people, either through means of apps or normal manual surveillance, the way we go about surveilling people just by sending people on the street to look out for them, uh, then what do we do, right? So how do we handle the 
isolating part. And you know, so the first uh, group of measures that we had were very rash because we had to deal with the situation very quickly. But we're going to have more experience with this and we're going to understand a bit more what the problems are. Right? And there are various reactions to this, right? You see what happened in Quebec where, um, you know, there were calls for um, de-isolation, as it were, um, in order to ensure that other social problems were not compounded, right? So that led to so much pressure that people said, well, we need to reopen schools so kids are not at home uh, facing mental health issues that we can't really spot and track, right? Um, Ontario is not talking about this right now, but it's talking about de-isolation. And it's talking about means of ensuring that it uh, de-isolates in a way that keeps the curve flat, as it were. But at the same time, that takes into account um, the different predicaments that um, different people in our communities are facing. Um, and I'm one of those who's encouraging the government to be very discerning. And so I'm working, for example, on a policy brief with colleagues right now trying to flesh out what are the various issues that are at stake and what kind of measures are proportionate to the threat that we're facing. I think that word, like these words, necessary and proportionate, have to govern the kind of response that we're adopting. They're vague, they need to be fleshed out, but has to be the point of departure. Yeah, uh, speaking here on the Radical Reverend Show to Professor Francois Tanguay Renault, um, uh, professor and uh, and co-director of York's uh, Jack and May Nathanson Center on Transnational Human Rights, Crime and Security since 2012. Um, and we dipped our toe into crime and security issues and, and it's the impact of the virus on civil rights. Um, I want to bring it back now a bit to the educational sphere, although I just have to comment on, on Francois and what you just had to say. And it's, it's really, I always find it a bit shocking how quickly we are to dispense with democracy and civil rights when we're scared, right? right? Uh, and I'm not speaking about, you know, right-wing, uh, you know, uh, fanatics here. I'm speaking about just your average citizen who may vote across the spectrum, but all of a sudden when their family uh, might you know, con contract a virus, all of a sudden it's okay that civil liberties be lifted a little bit here and there. So just, just to say one thing to this, so in, initially at the beginning of the crisis, I, I would read a lot of blog posts and newspaper entries from down south from the U.S., and that issue was right front and center from the beginning. But in Canada, it took some time for that debate to uh, pick up speed. It's there right now, but I think there's something to be said about our our political culture, which often has to be with, has to do with, well, we trust our government. We know that they're going to do what is good for us. And frankly, in Canada, we we have some basis for that trust. But I think it's also very important to remain vigilant. I don't think that tomorrow Canada is going to turn into a country like China, which you know makes sure that there are informants um, next door where we live at all points and knows everything that we're doing, and it retains that information um, in order to deploy all sorts of other kinds of goals that the states has, has. But it's still the case that well, there, there are worries about what's happening right now, right? So collection of information, what is done to various individuals in terms of deprivations of liberty. And, and academics like me, well, are there to call these things out, right? So that's part of our job, right? Yeah. To get and invested in the public sphere, so. Absolutely, and thank you for that. Uh, so uh, again, listening to a uh, radical reference show here at CIUT 89.5 FM, um, uh, speaking to Professor Francois Tanguay Renault from York. Um, uh, lawyer by trade, uh, but let's talk about academia now, especially yeah. let's start with lawyers. I mean, <laughs> what does law school look like now under COVID-19? So that's interesting. So, so I have two perspectives into this because mm -hmm. I'm both a professor and I'm an executive of the Osgoode Hall Faculty Association, which is the, the full service union that um, basically represents profs uh, at Osgoode. Um, so it looks very different. I want to say, and in a way, I'm very proud of my colleagues for having been able to flip on a dime. And so, so you know, came mid-March, we were asked suddenly to transfer all our courses online. We couldn't come to campus anymore. And um, then came a debate as to, you know, what online delivery should look like, but we didn't really have time to um, actualize that debate. We just had to put things online somehow, right? And students had to somehow <laughs> cope with that shift in delivery. Um, and so in my case, I was teaching a course in criminal procedure, which uh, involved uh, delivering lectures to a large group of students. Um, I simply recorded my lectures, put them online, and then allowed my students 
in the context of forms or email to ask me a bunch of questions. That was not ideal, right? Because the course was not planned to be online. And a lot of my colleagues are the same uh, criticism of what happened. They say, well, you know, our courses were, were typically asked to teach in person, right? And we think that there's something valuable to that. And suddenly uh, we're told you can't do this, right? So distance education exists throughout Canada. And um, wonderful things are done that way. But it's simply that, you know, the, the main mode of instruction is in that in our universities. And frankly, up to now, I've never done this, right? This, I, I wasn't trained as an academic to, to teach online. And then came the question of, well, how do we evaluate students, right? So this, so the Osgood Hall Law School functions in a very uh, deliberative, democratic way. Uh, collegial governance is very important. And so we had very large debates as to, you know, how do we evaluate? Should we uh, give students the option of um, electing a pass-fail model or a grade, right? And that's a model that was initially presented at Osgood. A committee that I chaired on academic policy and planning committee said, you know, we, give, we ought to give students that option. But then it became clear to colleagues that that might not be the best approach simply because it was impossible to know what kind of circumstances various students would be in and what kind of inferences we'd be drawn from electing pass-fail as opposed to electing a grade. And so ultimately, in the context of a committee of the whole, faculty council, as we call it, uh, that initial proposal was overruled in favor of a blanket pass-or-fail. Now, this is different from the rest of York, right? It's a credit to York for allowing a different uh, set of models to play out in different faculty uh, faculties, depending on what the, the needs and, and um, ways of of a functioning and pedagogical and, and, and I want to say market goals are for, for these faculties, right? So, so that's been the, the immediate kind of So say um, a little situation. bit, just, yeah. Yeah, just say a little bit more about the pass-fail versus grades situation. What were the concerns? I mean, yeah, what were the concerns about not going the pass-fail? I mean, and, and I, I, I want to put this in context. We're talking about lawyers here yeah. and the education yeah. of lawyers, which, you know, from the outside looking in seems incredibly competitive and of course the competition uh the c competition for jobs the content co you know competition um for articling sites all of that you know usually depends on your standing right your marks right. etc so so maybe lead us through a little bit of what went into your discussion around how to grade right so 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 you're completely right that the legal market is a very competitive one and in fact um it's a pretty terrible market right now, right? So law firms have seen a very significant decrease in their caseload. Uh, some lawyers are dealing with issues like employment, with people being temporarily laid off, etc. are very busy. But I would say that in the main, the legal profession now, you know, courts courts are closed. Some courts are dealing with online hearings. But all that to say that, um, you know, what's going to happen? We don't know. And so there. It's, we're dealing with a competitive market that's going to become even more competitive. Now, students know this, right, because they try to get jobs uh, for their articling, and they, most of them, I want to say, want to become uh, lawyers per se, and they need to find work to do this. We now have a, an alternative program in Ontario that allows students to become lawyers without articling, but it's still perceived as the plan B, the last, you know, prestigious option. Right, so, so when uh, the COVID situation sort of exploded and we started thinking about what kind of grading profile we wanted to have to respond to the situation, um, our student body was divided, right? Because some individuals said, well, you know, we worked very hard until the, the mid or two third semester for grades that are gonna determine, determine where we can go, right? Um, and, 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 and those were not just people who were uh, typically advantaged, right? So I had as chair of the, academic and policy committee that I mentioned, uh, you know, dozens of email for people saying, look, I'm somebody from a visible minority. Um, the legal profession is already very hostile to me. I invested so much this term. I want my grade, right? I want to be able to show employers that I'm the one that they should hire, right? And that's what initially, given that there were a constellation of demands, some students were saying, well, you know, I am a single mother at home. Uh, I can't study for exams, right? Which is a very legitimate um, kind of concern, right? So I, I things need to be passed up because there's no way in which I can possibly um, produce something that would do justice to uh, what I know and how good a lawyer to be I am, right? Uh, so so initially we thought we're going to give students the option, right? Because um, 
having the option, especially in a time of great uncertainty, so the literature on risk and disaster management says you just want to create more options for people to decide, right? But as the situation unfolded, it became very clear that very many students were facing unusual situations, right? Having to care for an elderly family member who might have been facing COVID, right? These kinds of difficult family situations involving kids, involving loss of work, or having to work more, right, as a result. Um, and the thought was that um, any kind of um, grading system that we might come up with that would uh, give an option would necessarily lead employers to draw inferences from what choice the person has made, grade or pass or failed, meant about how confident that person was in, in their abilities. And so, um, and that could not be compensated by, say, reference letters, et cetera, because grades are just so important to legal recruitment. Uh, so in the end, the general wisdom was that at Osgood and different law schools have opted to do different things. We opted for a pass-fail on our, our, in our notation, credit, no credit, um, grading profile. Uh, and speaking, of course, here uh, with uh, Professor Francois Tanguay-Renaud, um, co-director um, of uh, Center on Human Rights, Crime, and Security at York University, uh, about education, and in this case, the education of lawyers uh, in a post-secondary context. One of the things, Francois, I want to talk to you about is fees, tuition fees. They are astronomical now uh, for lawsuits. Didn't always, wasn't always that way. Um, was not always that way. Uh, so, and you, you mentioned, you know, students who are, are you know, racialized as single mothers, et cetera, et cetera. Um, maybe, do you think COVID will change that? Do you think there will be, I mean, uh, one of the fears, and I heard this uh, in the first half of the show from a professor at the college level, is that, of course, there's going to be austerity measures uh, after COVID, um, which I don't think are justified, but nevertheless, governments like to go there. So that may happen. That's going to affect the budgets of colleges and universities substantially. Um, only two ways you can um, balance yours, and that's staff salaries and or student tuitions. Um, so let's talk about money for a minute. Right. Um, yeah. So... So you're right that tuition in law schools in Ontario is astronomical. It varies between law school because of historical accident, U of T being at the top and other law schools being. So Osgood is the second highest. Okay. Can you, can you just uh, yeah. say how much that is right now for people out there in listener land? Who I actually don't, I, Sherry, I actually don't know what the figure is, but it's in the high 20,000, right? Yeah, so yeah. so oh, I think, I think right. it, it might be something around... 28, like I, don't quote me on this, and UFT might be at 35 or something, yeah. right? So we're, we're talking about a sizable amount of money. Uh, now you're asking, will COVID affect this? Um, well, you know, we don't, so tuition in law school is in a way deregulated, but it's regulated, it's capped, right? So, so at various points in history, it was allowed to go up, which allowed it to become the high tuition that it is. But right now, the tuition that we have is the tuition that we can have. It's the maximal tuition that the government would allow us to charge at Osgood, it varies between law schools depending on when and how much they deregulated at the time they were allowed to. So, so one thing to say is that you know, in the past few years with the current um, conservative government that we have, universities, including law schools, have had to face a freeze uh, in tuition. Whereas the law schools were expecting certain proportion increases, they were told no, tuition is frozen for you know, two to three years. And so that has, um, for students, has had the, 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 the fortuitous impact of saying, well, great, right? We, we will not have to pay as much as we intended to pay, right? And in our case, that kind of postponed the very real discussion that was to be had as to, you know, should we leave the tuition as high as it is? Can we afford to do that to retain the way we function, et cetera? Just because the government forced, as it were, uh, a moderation period, as, as it calls it. Now comes COVID, we're already having to deal with this, you know, in the realm of like 10%, 10 to 13% reduction to our budget this year. Now suddenly, right, what's going to happen? So we've managed to finish the semester, right? Everybody who's on, was enrolled is going to be allowed to, you know, get their report cards or degrees if they're graduating. But what about next year? What we're seeing is that there's going to be a huge shock in the offing because, first of all, international students 
who typically would come and fill the university bench and which universities increasingly, already, but increasingly turn to uh, charge very high tuition because they're not um, regulated in the same way as domestic students, they can be asked to pay a lot more, but will not be able to attend class, right? So I was in a meeting with the president of York yesterday in a union context where we told that in uh, the deficit for York some, it, for, for the next year, given COVID, given the slack of influx of international students and possibly having to reduce class sizes in order to deliver the program in whatever way we'll have to deliver it, probably including uh, a lot of uh, not in-person teaching, but maybe some in in-person teaching, you had like science programs, labs, et cetera, will, will result in, in, in a deficit of something of the order of $112 million. That's for one year due to a reduced cohort. And that cohort will then throughout time um, remain reduced, right? Um, and so you'll have a deficit like that for several years. If you talk on an undergraduate degree, four to five years, right? So not only do universities now have to deal with that moderation period, they have to deal with COVID-induced um, um, significant budget restriction. Now, what's going to happen with this? Well, you mentioned some ways out, right? So, so you can try to think creatively and try to get to students, like make your universities a distance education university. Allow people in China, India, England to take courses at your university digitally. Now, not all courses can be done like this, right? So for example, at York, we put a premium on experiential education, learning by doing. Can you really do that in the distance? Maybe there are some ways in which people can, uh, can think creatively about these things, but, but it, it, it really applies a lot of pressure and the way in which um, we conceive of the, the tasks that we're doing, right? So, so, so much budgetary pressure means that to answer your initial question, um, I really doubt that we're gonna see tuition go down, um, and given what the government has done in the past few years saying, well, students need to be given a break, we're gonna freeze tuition, I doubt that they're gonna allow it to go up, right? So, so what that means is presumably it's gonna stay where it is because the universities don't really have, including law schools, don't really have much of an option, right? Yeah, um, speaking with Professor uh, Francois Tanguay-Renaud, um, especially about uh, legal education uh, on the second part of uh, the Radical Reverence Show, um, one of the ways in which universities and colleges have balanced budgets in the past has been more and more contract faculty, more and more part-time teaching jobs, many of them uh, not great, <laughs> not a lot of security. Um, do you see... Uh, do you see this increasing as a way of balancing budgets? I mean, you know, as a, as a full-time professor, um, uh, do you see less and less tenure, et cetera? Where do you see faculty in this? So we know for a fact that given the budgetary constraints, we're not expecting very much tenure stream hiring in the coming years, right? Um, and that's probably going, going to apply to all universities in this country, right? Because tenure positions are very expensive positions. They're the gold standards for a professor. It means that basically once you get tenure, you have a job for life. Um, and so the question that you're asking me is, well, will precarious work increase as a result? Well, financial pressure, pressures may mean that some heads are going to roll at some point, right? So, so the administration in universities has ballooned uh, in the past decades. Um, this situation might lead to a rethinking of what um, administrative support is needed, right? So, so uh, you know, at York, we do not have these discussions yet, right? So there's no, but, but it's conceivable that if the university needs to cut and can't make those cuts by rejigging its program, extending its reach in terms of distance education and so on and so forth, then, you know, you have to look at the next line uh, in, uh, the in, in, in the, the expense sort of side of the, of the budget and say, well, who can we cut? Right, so my sense is staff is probably going to suffer. Staff always suffers first in these situations. And then given that you can get rid of tenure faculty or get rid as easily, all collective agreements have financial exigencies, clauses that may allow to lay off tenure faculty. But that would be a very extreme measures. We don't have examples of this um, in the Ontario context, right? That, at least that I'm aware of. Then it may be that uh, what we see is a reduction of um, contract faculty, right? Because you have some people who you need to pay, well, you're gonna make them work 
<laughs> and and try to get a bang for your buck as much as possible. So so one possible outcome of this, even though a university like York relies heavily on contract faculty uh, to deliver a bunch of its programs, it might be that it needs to rethink what it does. I don't see contract faculty disappearing, but their precarious conditions are not likely to to improve, both in terms of the number of jobs that they have access to and possibly their conditions. And we're not talking about reopening collective agreements, but collective agreements end, and when they do have to get, be renegotiated, and renegotiating in the, in the, in the, in the shadow of, of, uh, of COVID is gonna be something interesting. Yeah, uh, of course, uh, and, and it's interesting that uh, COVID pandemics, like other crises, it's the people at the low end, people who paid the worst, who are most precarious, who suffer the most. We're seeing this right across uh, sectors of, of our community. Um, so we, I guess in a sense, we, we're back at civil rights again. I did want to make a point though when we were talking but, about no, but not, not, not just yeah. civil rights, socioeconomic rights, and people oh, absolutely. who are for a basic minimum income might have a, a pretty substantial argument that people are already making it, right? So a a absolutely. justifiably. Absolutely. I did want to make a point about law students. So when we were talking about tuition that, you know, people, I, I'm sure there are people out there in listening line says, well, come on, law students, they're all going to make a fortune when they graduate. Uh, and I, I, I wanted to absolutely make the, the clear cut point that that is not the case. I, I remember, you know, speaking to uh, uh, Dr. Eric Hoskins when he was Minister of Health and I was at the provincial government about doctors and he said, oh, don't worry, you know, like, yes, their tuition is sky high, but they'll make it, they'll pay it off. Uh, but that's not the case for lawyers. We, we really need to get that out there. It is not the case for lawyers. Right. No, that's true. I mean, some lawyers make the choice to, so, so some law students make the choice to try to apply to jobs that are highly remunerative, but those jobs are typically located in certain areas of practice, namely corporate law, Bay Street. And, you know, they're only limited positions and not everybody wants to work for Bay Street. And that's a good thing because we need lawyers to do very many things. <laughs> exactly. Um, speaking to uh, uh, Professor Francois Tanguay-Renaud, um, and it's been an absolute delight. Uh, what are your hopes? We've only got a couple of minutes left. So what are your hopes coming out of COVID? Best possible scenarios. How do you think post-secondary education should change after COVID? So I do hope, so, so situations of crisis always create opportunity. I don't want to cite Obama here, but that's true, right? So, so we're going to be forced to try and test a bunch of new approaches to delivery of education and to rethink what we think is essential or necessary for a good education, right? So, so once the crisis has been with us for a little while, we'll have a chance to create, ta create task force to think about, well, we've had to make changes, should some of these changes become more permanent, right? It might be that some should not, right? But, so for example, your typical professor who goes into the classroom, record, like sort of just delivers the lectures, leaves and go home, um, which has been the traditional mode of delivery of higher education, well, is that, is that really much added value insofar as, well, you could just record that lecture and then people will have seen that and will have known what the results of that are by then. So I'm hopeful that it's going to lead to a bit of, you know, shaking or, or rejigging of the ivory tower, as it were, uh, in an organized way involving a lot of, you know, collegial deliberations, et cetera. I also hope, uh, and that's, that's more of a, a a sort of a, a lofty aspiration, right? That when it becomes clear that the market has been impacted in the way in which it will, when it becomes clear that many students who would have been able to attend university are not anymore because of the result of COVID, well, we do some soul searching, right? So I happen with a name like Francois, not to come from Ontario originally, I'm Quebecois. And I paid very little to pay to law to go to law school, something like a thousand six hundred dollars plus ancillary fees. Let's say three thousand five hundred, and that's still the tuition today. It might be just a bit higher, right? So why is it that in a province like Quebec, tuition is so low, and Quebec in Ontario it's so high, and yet both universities, McGill, where I was a law student, and York, Osgood, are able to provide very high quality programs? Well, you know, hopefully COVID is going to be what it takes for us to, and 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 for the population in general to realize that look, maybe the way we're doing things is not the only way. And for students, faculty members, to agitate for something different, right? There's a bit of, I've always found a bit of complacency in Ontario, right? You'll remember the Printemps Irable in Quebec where everybody's in the street. Where is that in Ontario, right? 
maybe COVID is a moment. But again, that's a lofty aspiration. People right now are really focused about staying healthy um, at home and you know, uh, caring about their own. Hopefully that the community piece is going to uh, start taking a bit more of a face uh, in our public discourse, yeah. Thank you so much, Francois. A bit Thank of you, Sherry. Till the next time on the Radical Revenue Show. It was lovely. Thank you. Thank you.